everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters. With me today is uh, Phil Rosso, and alongside him are our special guests, uh, Associate Professor Julian uh, Elliott and Dr. Tari Turner. Welcome, Julian, and welcome, Tari. Hi, Brett. Great to be here. So just by way of uh, introduction, um, Associate Professor Julian Elliott is the lead um, is the lead for evidence systems at Cochrane, a senior research fellow at Cochrane Australia and infectious diseases physician at uh, Alfred Hospital in Australia. And uh, in 2017, Julian was awarded the recipient of the Commonwealth Health Minister's Award for Excellence for Health and Medical Research. He's also the co-founder and CEO of Covenants and is the executive director of the National COVID-19 Task Force, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Dr. Tari Turner is co-editor-in-chief of BMC Journal Health Research and Policy Systems, which is published in collaboration with the World Health Organization. Tari is a long-standing senior member of Cochrane Australia in the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University and a staff member at uh, the Melbourne Grade Centre. Dr. Turner is also Director of Evidence and Methods for the National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force. It's wonderful to have um, both of these uh, people join us today. And of course, Phil, great to have you with us, I guess, too. Thanks, Brett. Great to be here once again. I might kick off this uh, little chat um, by asking Julian a question about the task force. Julian, can you just give us an idea of what the task force is and how it came to be? Yeah, thanks, Phil. Um, well, we, we happen to be having a series of meetings in, in uh, early March about uh, guidelines in Australia, particularly this model of living guidelines that we've been developing over recent years. So the idea of producing high quality, trustworthy guidelines that are kept constantly up to date with the latest research. And uh, in our meetings with government and others, it was, it was you know apparent even then that there was this plethora of largely low quality um, guidelines and guidance and position statements coming out, which often had very contradictory statements. And so we, we saw the very real risk um, that healthcare workers were actually gonna be um, hampered and confused by this plethora of, of differing positions. And so agreed with government, we should try and set up a more comprehensive system for Australia, which within a week or so actually resulted in the establishment of the task force, which has now grown to be a partnership with them um, 32 national peak health organizations where we come together uh, to produce clinical guidelines for the care of people with COVID-19. And I think it's very much with a commitment across all of those partners of speaking with one voice. Um, so using very rigorous evidence-based processes, using the grade methodology to produce guidelines um, to keep them very much up to date. So updating them every week. Um, but, you know, having the hard conversations internally on those panels so that we can come out with a unified position and unified guidelines to provide clarity um, for Australian healthcare workers. So at this point, I probably should declare um, that I'm actually on the steering committee of the, of the task force. Um, and so I have some understanding of the machinations behind it. And, and it's been no mean feat, Julian, pulling it all together. Uh, thanks, Phil. Yeah, I mean, I think some people when we started thought we were insane, um, building a partnership of that size. Also to note, as, as you know, that um, when we update the guidelines every week, um, we seek uh, formal approval from each of those 32 member organisations. So that's you know, 32, 32 organisations working through the internal processes every week to get that sign off. But, um, you know, I think it's just been a fantastic partnership. People have been very committed, engaged in the process. And I think 
that sense that we really are producing high quality guidelines that are you know extremely up to date has really you know been a, a very kind of unifying and motivating force um and I think in the end, people have been very proud with what we've been able to provide to clinicians in Australia around that. We might ask you in a moment, um, Julian, just, just to describe what we mean by living guideline a bit more. But for those of you who are listening, you might want to follow the COVID evidence task force on Twitter. And I think there was a tweet last week. And of course, this gets updated regularly. But just to give you a size of the scope of the work informing some of those recommendations, there were 54,000 studies that had been reviewed so far. Um, and um, and just 2,000 in the last fortnight alone. And so, you know, there's so much work that the team is doing behind the scenes to come up with a sort of a living recommendation document. But what do you mean by living recommendations? And perhaps, Tara, you can feel free to join in on this one too. Uh, so I'll just give the high-level statement, which is really, as we say, it's not rocket science. Um, you know, guidelines generally have been updated every three, five, seven years or longer. Um, but of course, you know, science never sleeps. There's research coming out every day. So a living guideline is essentially using all of the well-established, um, well-accepted, high-quality processes of systematic reviews and, and great guidelines, um, but setting the operation up in a way that we can do that continuously. So run continuous evidence surveillance and feed that evidence through to our panels and update the guideline as quickly as possible. Um, in, in the context of COVID, that's been weekly um, because of the just the huge flow of research. In, in other guidelines we've been doing, say in stroke, diabetes, arthritis, we've tended towards every month or, or couple of months um, doing an update. Sorry, that's a nice segue because um, Julia mentioned one of the panels. So the task force have got several panels and I should also declare that I'm a member of the COVID Evidence Task Force Leadership Group. One of the panels that was recently established was an infection control um, panel. So Tari, do you want to tell us a little bit about the infection prevention and control panel? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Brad. Um, yeah, so as Julian flagged, it was just over 12 months ago that the task force was set up to look at questions around management of COVID specifically. And much more recently than that, the infection prevention and control panel was set up with a focus particularly on looking at how we can prevent COVID infection in healthcare workers. Um, so looking at the various parts of that question, starting with um, looking at personal protective equipment and other kind of really burning issues for healthcare workers and how we can make sure that, that really vital workforce is protected from COVID infection, even as they're dealing with um, individuals who may have confirmed COVID or maybe suspected of COVID and across a whole range of healthcare settings. So the IPC panel um, is looking from at infection prevention in hospitals and in um, primary care clinics and also in aged care settings and quarantine settings and transport and just trying to really have a good sense of what the evidence is and what we think the good quality recommendations are about how best to prevent COVID infections in those settings. Tari, I'm just wondering, can you give us an idea of, of who's on that panel and what their backgrounds are? Mm. So that's a great question and I think it's actually one of the strengths of this panel. Um, when we talk about the task force, I kind of think of it as having two major strengths. One is the evidence synthesis piece and one is the convening piece and bringing together those, um, those experts across a whole lot of different disciplines. On the IPC panel, we've obviously got expertise in infection prevention and control, um, infectious diseases, but also the settings that we're covering. So whether it's primary care, or older people, women's health, paediatric and adolescent health, emergency care, critical care, the whole spectrum. Um, but perhaps in a 
um, the additional benefit that this panel has is we've got expertise in other disciplines that are a really important part of the important part of the conversation. So um, occupational hygiene, um, clinical engineering, occupational environmental medicine, um, providing that diversity of perspectives and and views and experience in working sure. in this space. And the panel's been going for a while now. So are there any particularly hot topics or recommendations that are that are going to be coming out soon that we can we can look forward to? Yeah. So the first cab's off the rank. We just thought we'd, you know, start by dipping our toe in the water and dealing with the face masks question. So um the panel's been quite focused on looking at eye protection and face mask choices in the first instance. Um, they'll be our first recommendations. Um, and then we're moving on to questions that are a bit more diverse. So looking at ventilation, um, air purification devices, patient occupancy, those kinds of areas in the next round of recommendations. So for the people listening, uh, they may be specifically interested in the infection control side of things, but they almost uh, more, almost they may also be interested in the therapeutic side. So where do people go to find out the latest evidence from the task force? Yep. So the most straightforward thing is to go to our website, which is covid19evidence.net.au. Um, and there you can click through to see the most recent guidance, whether it's for treatment or infection prevention and control. You can also see the questions that we're looking at but haven't yet come up with recommendations on um, and flow charts, clinical flow charts and other materials that sit alongside our guidance. You can also sign up at that webpage um, to get a, a, re a regular update from the task force on what's happening, what's changed and what's coming. Uh, and as you mentioned, there's Twitter and all the usual social media feeds. Fantastic. So you've been working on the IP panel specifically, Tari, for, for a period of time and Julian obviously um, uh, much broader than some other panels on top of that. Um, what do you think are the specific challenges that infection prevention and control have created in terms of evidence? Like what 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 do you see as being different compared to some of the other panels um, that you might have worked on? Yeah, okay. So I'll come to the evidence in just a second, but the first thing would just be to say that the breadth of this panel is a challenge. So even if we're looking at a really narrow intervention like eye protection, thinking about all the contexts in which our recommendations need to apply is a, is a particular challenge that's probably beyond what the other panels are looking at, which are more sort of specific to particular patient groups or contexts. But from an evidence perspective, it's really just that this is a whole different world. So um, for the clinical care guidelines, we're talking about treatment interventions, many of which are um, drugs, therapeutics, and can be most easily um, and appropriately evaluated in randomised controlled trials and similar types of studies. Um, and whilst initially for our guidelines, we didn't have heaps of evidence for most of those interventions, over the last 12 months, we've actually seen a lot of evidence come through the pipeline. Uh, and we now have um, good sources of evidence for many of the questions that are important to clinicians around treatment. Um, for infection prevention and control, that's not the case. So we don't have good quality um, evidence from the kinds of studies that we'd be used to looking for in um, these other in treatment questions, for example. So there aren't good quality randomised control trials or even observational studies to really inform the types of questions that we've looked at so far. That would be the biggest challenge from an evidence perspective. Um, yeah, and I think just to add to that, I think um, in addition to the um, IPC management recommendations that we'll be issuing, um, you know, Tari's been a great um, champion for ensuring that we also develop research recommendations. And I think this is actually critically important. I think as a task force, um, one of the key things that we reflect on is that the, um, we really 
as a as a as a task force, but also in terms of a health system response. Um, we are in a very difficult position because of because of the um, paucity of evidence, and we I think one of the most important um, aspects of a kind of national or international reflection on, on how we responded to the pandemic is to recognize that the funding for drug interventions has been you know, orders of magnitude more than for non-drug interventions. And I think you'd have to say that infection prevention control is really, I would say the most important area where there, there of, of, of um, non-drug interventional questions that for which we've not seen adequate research funding or research conducted. And that really does leave us, government and society more broadly in a very difficult position at this point in the pandemic. Um, so we're very strong supporters for um, efforts to advocate for, for broader non-drug interventional research. And I just want to call out there's, a, there's an initiative called the Behavioural, Environmental, Social and Systems Interventions Initiative, or BESI, um, led by Paul Glazew, Jeremy Grimshaw and Susan Mickey. Um, who you know very well established researchers in, in in implementation science, and I think you know we wholly support the, um, the aims of that initiative in in calling for more non-drug um, interventional research. I think too, if I can be just completely nerdy for a minute, you know, as a methodologist, the methods around how to how to synthesise evidence in this kind of space, and then how to use that evidence to develop guidelines and recommendations, are just less well developed than they are in other areas of clinical treatment particularly. So if there are other sources of evidence that we might be able to bring to the table from the other disciplines that are represented on the panel with those engineering or um, lab-based work, but our current frameworks just aren't designed to um, synthesise those different types of evidence together in a neat way. Yeah, I, I think um, your point earlier, Tari, about the um, broad landscape where these guidelines need to be implemented is a real challenge in infection prevention and control. We're not talking just about hospitals, we're talking about hotels and airports and, and all these unusual environments, I guess. Um, for, perhaps for, for you, Julian, the, the, there is national infection control guidelines that were developed by NHMRC and both Brett and I were involved in, in that. And they're also in a live um, format or living guidelines. How do you see the work that the task force is doing blending in with the national guidelines and, and future um, iterations of them? Yeah, I think um, the context up till now is we've, I think, been very conscious of those guidelines. And so as much as possible, we, we reference those and um, build off those for the specific needs of people during the pandemic. In terms of then how we loop back and perhaps, um, you know, what might have been developed through these guidelines then feeds back into those national guidelines. I think that's still to be defined. Um, uh, I know that through the work of the panel, it's been very important to think through carefully, you know, where is this very much a COVID-specific recommendation versus where this might have a broader implication. And I think having um, people like yourself and Brett and others um, involved in the process who are very familiar with the national guidelines and the guideline process has been really valuable in, 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 in navigating that. I think too, again, from a methods perspective, it's fantastic to have those high quality guidelines produced in 2019 sitting there so we can be confident referring back to them for the pieces of the IPC puzzle that are not COVID specific. Um, so that's a really useful thing to make sure we continue to update and maintain as well. 
For those listeners who are um, not from Australia, um, the NHMRC is uh, a national health and medical research council who developed uh, national guidelines for infection control and continue to, to do so. So similar to many other bodies internationally, CDC, NICE and various other organisations that put out um, recommendations, it's really a question about how do we make sure that COVID related work synthesizes with those pieces of work. And one of the challenges I think is, is you started to allude to Tari, it's great methodology to come up with some of those recommendations. Tari and Julian, do you see any solutions uh, or way forward in terms of is grade the right thing to be using for infection control um, recommendations? Um, is that, or, or do you think that's something that we do need to look at seriously as we move forward as well, given that it's very difficult to get high quality research in uh, in this space? So I'm clearly massively biased. I'm a member of staff at the Melbourne Grade Centre. Um, but I think grade is the right framework. I think we do need to think a bit more about how we can produce some tweaks or some adaptations of grade that allows us to bring in that breadth of evidence that um, is important for IPC questions. And, and there's been some work done by others around, in, for example, in the environmental science and in toxicology type space, um, the that would form a useful foundation for us, I think, in starting to develop a more um, tailored grade approach to IPC questions. I think there's some work to be done there, um, but I think the door's open to that too. There's a, a series of publications a couple of years ago about flagging the need to do this, so we're not the only ones um, aware of the challenge, and I think um, it's a piece of work, work, work worth doing. Excellent. Well, thank you both very much for um, your time. We appreciate that um, you, like many others in this space, are extremely busy at the moment. And um, the work that Task Force is doing has been it's been wonderful to be part of it. And um, most importantly, more importantly, I think it's helping clinicians and outcomes for patients. Um, so well done to both of you on, on, on your work nationally on that. But also thank you for joining us uh, for this podcast and giving up your time today. A pleasure and a privilege. Thanks. <laughs> Absolute pleasure. Thank you both. Thanks, folks. Thanks for listening, and uh, we hope you can join us again for our next, next podcast. Bye for now. Bye.